game theory. And the file name would be uh, games, G-A-M-E-S. So we want to talk about games, psychological games, uh, from the viewpoint of a trainer, from the viewpoint of a person who is working with a person who's playing games. And the idea of the whole talk, or the, the idea of working with a person who's playing games, um, is to do a thing that, that I want to call creating possibility. With the goal being that everybody wins. So, I just want to start off saying that everybody plays games. Everybody is playing games because everybody has a, a psyche or a, a psychological defense strategy. <clears throat> and the manner by which a psychological defense strategy works and sustains itself and protects itself and stays in control is um, by playing games. And by what I mean by a game is that a game is a uh, like an entire universe within itself um, that is contained by um, the assumptions of the game, that it, the assumptions of the game operate as a wall that don't allow anything from inside of the wall to go outside, <clears throat> and don't allow anything from outside of the wall to come inside. And the result that this produces is a situation where a person it becomes 100% identified with the game. That is, uh, who they are, who they think they are, is, is the picture or fantasy created by the assumptions contained in the game. And no other assumptions are possible for them. There's, there, the only thing that's possible is what's contained in the assumptions of the game space. <clears throat> so the only way a trainer can work with somebody who's playing a game is if the trainer is bigger than the game. So if the trainer is not bigger than the game, then what happens is, is when they make contact with the person who's playing the game, the, um, the, con the contact produces a resonant assumption, a resonant a set of assumptions in the trainer. And the trainer gets sucked into this, into this being identified with the game just as identified as the player of the game. So if a trainer is not bigger than the game, the entire game, then they get sucked into the assumptions of the game, and once inside 
those set of assumptions, they no longer see any possibility of anything other than that set of assumptions, and they are stuck in the game just as stuck as the creator of the game. So everybody plays games, and each person who plays a game is a creator of that game. So, like uh, us, something to, to think about here is that human beings are remarkably creative and powerful in that they, they create the games, they create and maintain all of the games that they play. So even the game of I'm not creative or the game of um, I'm a victim, you know, like there's no possibility, I'm weak, I'm small, I'm, I'm powerless, um, I uh, can't control anything, I'm confused, I'm not connected, I'm, I'm little, I'm abandoned, I'm helpless. All of those games are created by the game player. And uh, um, the names of those games is uh, are, are just sort of indicate the set of assumptions that are that are that the game consists of. So when a person creates a game for themselves, they have ass they have regarded or assessed their environment and the situation that they're in, and they have assembled this game by reflex. That is, it. Um, it's a, it wasn't planned, it wasn't a proactive creation, it was a reflexive creation, it was a response to stimulus in their environment. And in that way, uh, it shows up to them, it appears to them as being the only possible solution to a given situation. There is nothing else that is possible for them. It's. Um, this is the only way it can be. This is who I am, this is how life is, and this is the way things are. There's no way out. And really, a person for a long time may not even look for a way out or consider that there might be a way out because the way a game is set up it's always set up in a way that the person who plays the game receives a major payoff. So some of the payoffs that a person gets for playing a game are that they get to blame other people for making their life bad for example. It's somebody else's fault that the situation is like this. So that's a, that's a tremendous payoff to be able to blame somebody else for, for causing this problem to them, for them. Like it's not their fault, it's the other person's fault. Um, an, another payoff would be that um, a person can stay little, that um, they don't have to think about things or take care of things. They um, they can feel resentful and um, 
be right. And if they get to be right, that's a major payoff for them. Another payoff would be that perhaps it feels safe. The situation feels safe, like, um, <clears throat> like uh, if I play victim strong enough, somebody will rescue me. And if I'm in a in a permanent situation of being rescued in a consistent way, then I might feel safe, or I might think that I'm being taken care of, and things are okay. And um, you know, if I, another payoff is that I don't have to take any risks, I don't have to um, I don't have to show up, I don't have to express myself, I don't have to take care of things myself, all of these payoffs are just different ways of saying uh, that I don't have to be responsible. You know, another payoff is I don't have to realize um, my vision for myself or my vision for my destiny. I don't have to, I don't have to be a stand for uh, creating uh, my future or my present, <coughs> I don't have to protect anybody else or take care of anybody else. And these are just, the payoff is, the, the, you know, in essence, the payoff is that I don't have to be responsible or I, I get to be irresponsible. So this is the payoff for playing a self-contained game. Now, the payoff is usually unconscious, but um, it's, it's recognizable. The payoff is usually recognizable, and, um, you know, if once it's at least recognizable by other people um, outside the game, or other people playing different games, and um, people only involve themselves when with other people who are playing similar or complementary games. And so the, the definition of one's, one's life is limited by or defined by um, the, the interactions that's possible between your game or your games and the games of the other people in your environment. If a person comes along who plays a game that disturbs or destroys or undermines your game, you won't, you won't stay in that situation. You will get rid of them or you will go away. One of those two. So, um, so games are, are to understanding games and working with, with game theory is a crucial aspect to what a trainer does when working with people in the event. So, when a person plays a game and receives the payoff, that part is at least somewhat conscious for them. It's like they know there's a reward or a payoff or they're, they're sort of pleased with the results of the game. There's one level at which people 
receive the reward of not being, not having to be responsible or getting to be irresponsible, and are pleased with that. They're sort of, they think they're clever. They have succeeded. There's a um, sort of an underworld joy or a devilish glee or a you know I gotcha kind of payoff uh, with respect to the world that a person uh, experiences. But the flip side, the flip side to the payoff is what we call the price or the cost. That is, what, what, it, what is a person paying to receive his payoff? What, is a, what does it cost a person to receive their payoff? Like, you don't get something for free. So the, pay, uh, the payoff of getting to be irresponsible is not received for free. It's paid for. And so the thing is that um, the cost of playing the self-contained game with the payoff of being irresponsible, the cost of that is not realized. It's not conscious. It's not perceptible normally because the cost is usually outside of the assumptions of the game or the, the game space. The cost does not, is, is not, uh, you can't sense the cost or experience the costs of playing the game within the game. So they're not normally experienced in one's life um, in, the, in, the, in the present. Usually, the costs of a game are only experienced over a long period of time. In an, um, after, you know, one has played the game for years and years and years, and um, has has begun to uh, attain a kind of just sort of old old age overview of a life. Like what have what has happened in my life, or what you know? You're lying on your deathbed. You're about ready to die. You're looking back on your life, and perhaps at that time you begin to get a glimmer, or you know, a, a small light begins to shine uh, in the direction of what has it cost me to play this games for my entire life. So this this thing of realizing the costs is is a natural occurrence but it usually occurs over a span of a lifetime and um, by the time one begins to realize that in normal in in normal situations you know in a normal life uh, it's too late to do anything about it in that lifetime and the only possibility for anything eventually becoming different is that as one dies, one makes a vow to make things different. And um, we, will, we will discuss this phenomena of a, of a death wish or a, um, a past life vow. We'll discuss that in a different... Um, conversation. Right now I want to stick with um, a trainer dealing with, in the present time, with a person who's playing a game 
and what a trainer can do with that situation, which is which is the normal situation a trainer will encounter. So what we propose, I mean, what the event is about, is about making what's known as an evolutionary change. And the evolutionary change is, is um, is it is a it's not a gradual kind of change evolutionary evolution is sometimes described as um, what's called pu punctuated evolution what what that means is that everything stays the same until it suddenly changes and then everything stays the same again until it suddenly changes and what a trainer's interested in is creating, uh, working in an environment where those sudden changes occur. Now in the event, the phenomena of the event, or the sudden reordering we call it, is described by Ilya Prigogine's theory of dissipative structures. And is a well-known and well-described phenomena. So. So, but what I'm, what we're talking about here is that the evolutionary change that occurs in the event is a, it's an unnatural uh, change. That is, it occurs in less span of time than a lifetime. It occurs in a, a much shorter period of time where um, the intention of the work is to ex, uh, ex, like expand the awareness to include uh, something other than the game. It's an unnatural evolutionary change invoked by the what the work of the trainer and the event. <coughs> so what we want to talk about here, begin to talk about, is exactly how a trainer works with games in the context of the event to produce this uh, unnatural evolutionary sudden reordering. So to begin with, a trainer looks at a person who's playing a game and recognizes that that person is committed to them, their self, to themselves. That person is committed to themselves. So at this point, before a person has done much work on themselves, uh, who they are, like this, who, what, who they are as a, as a psychological being, is a set of stories about themselves and the world, and a set of deep emotional. Autom automatic mechanical responses to stimulus. So it's what we're talking about is uh, a, like a psychological machine that is committed to sustaining and maintaining itself consisting of um, stories which are um, past which are uh, 
past experiences influencing the viewpoint of the present such that the present becomes only interpretable, interpretable, like to interpret. It's only interpretable by a, the set of, through the set of stories that a person has. That is, they're not really viewing reality. What they're viewing is a movie that they have playing inside of their head, um, which, which is like a video, which is a story. And uh, each story has a, like a little button that turns it on and off, or, or turns it on anyway, and then it plays all the way through. And that button is um, a set of, uh, like uh, each button is an old emotion that is um, uh, just hanging out all over the person's, you know, psycho psychological space that can be pressed by any similar type stimulus that was somehow involved in originally creating this deep emotion in the body that is still incomplete. It's still uh, hanging, it's still resident in the body. So that, that's what a, that's what a uh, person looks like to a trainer who's looking with this kind of um, viewpoint. So a trainer looks at a person and sees like a uh, kind of a ball of energy with all these uh, emotional buttons that if you push one of those buttons, what you get is sort of a three-dimensional video, sight and sound video playback of a, of a reenaction of a story that a person has recorded. And it's an it's a unconscious mechanical machine response that um, that uh, that you know there's like you know 30 to 50 of them that come in the room on Friday night and sit down in the row rows of chairs and and look up at the trainer uh, with skepticism or uh, you know disbelief or scorn or um, awe or desire or whatever that they you know whatever uh, whatever it is that is playing for them at that time but that's that's what comes into the room um, another way to look at that is that every time you push one of those buttons on this psychological um, um, control panel hanging out there, every time you push a button, what comes out in terms of a story is actually a, a creature or an, a, 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 an energetic entity that's kind of like a blobby, uh, hungry, uh, scary, uh, um, immature, like childish, you know, baby kind of monster thing that blobs and goops around until it sort of does its thing and evaporates and, and then uh, another button gets pushed. And this is, you have a room full of, of um, uh, sort of like, um, uh, you know, Aladdin's lamp. Aladdin is a young boy who finds this lamp and he, when he rubs on this lamp, this sort of genie comes out of the lamp. Well, rubbing the lamp is pushing the button and the genie is this, is this psychological uh, entity or story that replays. And um, rather than just a single story, a person usually has 
um, two or three primary stories and a bunch of little accessory stories that support it or are intertwined with it. And it's this kind of psychological ener energy machine that, um, that a, a trainer is confronted with <laughs> when uh, everybody comes into the room Saturday morning or, you know, Friday night they start, but then Saturday morning when you're beginning the training. That's what's sitting in the circle is a bunch of these, these uh, psychological machines. So the techniques of beginning to work with these machines, these uh, video generators, these uh, psychological um, entity or genie lamps, multiple genie lamps, is we have two, is we have two primary techniques. And I want to tell you the names of them, and then I'll describe how they work. The one, one technique is called the monkey wrench technique. And the other technique is the doorway technique. So as we said before, in either, in either case, as we said before, in order for a trainer to begin to work with one of these psychological machines, the trainer has to be bigger than that than that machine. Has to, has to be bigger than that. <laughs> so, a machine is is the game. So this has to be tied together in the edit of this piece. But when I'm mentioning machine, when I say machine, what I'm talking about is uh, the game and the defense strategy that, that protects the game. So, yeah, the game goes on in, inside of the machine, and the machine protects itself and stays in control with the buttons on the outside and the... Um, emotions and stories and that those are the methods by which a game is protected and um, sustained so the person the trainer has to be bigger than the machine or bigger than the game in order to in order to work with it so yet on the other hand um, a trainer can't work with can't go through the outside of the machine and and work on the game that's going on inside. The trainer can't do that without going inside. Like a trainer can't do this work without getting his hands dirty. So so what has to happen is that a trainer has to have the ability to keep one foot on the outside of the game and put one foot on the inside. That is, he's got to be able to simultaneously exist outside, both outside of and within the game. this way, the trainer keeps from getting identified with or sucked into 
the game itself and has the, the chance of, of working with it, of producing something different. So I want to talk about the monkey wrench technique. Now, a monkey wrench is a name for a, another name for a pipe wrench. And a pipe wrench is a large tool for tightening or loosening plumbing, water plumbing pipes or, or plumbing pipes. Um, and it has a large set of jaws that are adjustable to different sizes. And it's kind of this big, bulky, heavy metal um, tool. It's got a lot of leverage and a lot of weight. And it's used for doing kind of gross, heavy-duty um, plumbing work. And so the, the name, the monkey wrench technique, comes from the idea that if you have a large machine, a large m mechanism with gears and spokes and wheels and pulleys and belts and whistles and pistons and rods and um, gear, conveyor chains and um, this machine is going chinkapunk, -ka chinkapunk. -ka I don't know how you're going to spell that. And whistles and it's just cruising along like a machine does, doing the same thing it always does. <coughs> in an emergency or in a, in a situation where the object is to befuddle the machine or confuse the machine or stop the machine or have the machine do something different, so the game is the machine. The machine is a game. The game functions mechanically. So the game is a machine. Um, one, one possibility that um, has been used <laughs> successfully before it, by a mechanic or somebody, a plumber, is to, is to pick up his monkey wrench and uh, look at the machine for a moment and find a tender spot or a, a the weakest point, some piece that's spinning around, some wheel and gear mechanism that's spinning around. And and if you take your wrench and and um, time time your move correctly, you can you can slip the wrench between one of the spokes and one of the parts of the machine and and jam the entire machine. The, the machine, the mechanical, uh, the mechanical movements of the machine are blocked by the monkey wrench. And in fact, as the machine tries to continue to do what it has always done and tries to force the part that's blocked to continue to move in the, in the way it has always moved, what usually happens is something breaks irreparably. <coughs> one, of the, one of the wheels pops off, an axle twists and breaks, or one of the pistons explodes, or, or pipes get broken and leaks happen and steam and smoke come out, and, um, and uh, loud sparks and, and uh, explosions. And, you know, this is the kind of thing... Uh, you know, James Bond might do when he's faced with um, taking apart a system w w without uh, without regard for exactly how the system comes apart. He just has to stop something and make it and destroy it. The, the method for destroying it is to throw in a monkey wrench.
there, another example from a story is the, a man who had a, an entire computer system that was a very smart computer, an advanced computer, and controlled everything about an environment. And he had, um, he had three-minute access to this main computer with, and with the goal in mind of totally destroying the computer. And, and he sat down at the keyboard, and he, and he accessed the main computer, and he asked it uh, one question, a one-word question. He sat down, and he typed in the word, why? And because this was a smart computer, it tried to answer this question. So it said, and, and tried to explain things and and justify things and uh, you know blame things and be right about things. And it tried every single thing to answer this question, and it couldn't answer it completely. So it continued to try something else, and pretty soon the entire computer system failed because it it was unable to answer that question, why, without um, disassembling itself. So that's actually an exact example of a, of a technique of monkey wrenching that a trainer can use when faced with a game machine. And, um, you know, a trainer can just ask why, and ask why, and ask why. and. Um, sooner or later, the machine can't tolerate that. You know, there's no... The machine has blocks against consistently asking the question, why, and taking it to the point of, of like, what the payoff is. So, um... So another, another technique of monkey-wrenching a, ma a game machine is to... Uh, um, stand outside of the set of the assumptions of the game and make noise and make enough noise that the person who is contained within the assumptions of the game um, hears the noise and and perhaps hears you as a person or you asking a question or you asking for um, relationship or connection or um, communication and but however the person doesn't see you in the set of assumptions that they're working in you're invisible to them so it's immensely frustrating for you to be speaking from outside of their set of assumptions in a, such a way that they can hear you uh, because uh, sooner or later they're going to have to look at the fact that there there is in there is something that exists outside of their set of assumptions. Like, like when a person is identified with their assumptions, they assume that that is all there is. And for you to be outside of all there is, making noise, saying like, hey, there's a big world out here. What are you doing in that little tiny box? Like knocking on the door going, what are you doing in there? Come on out. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to go in there. You come out here. Look at look at, look at all the stuff that's out here. Um, <clears throat> which, by making that noise, you're and and having them, you know, demanding that they respond to you or make contact with you. Then, what they have to do is actually move outside of the assumptions of their space, and that that instantly disrupts and shatters the game machine. So 
That's called monkey wrenching the game machine. A person's response to that, the natural organic response to having their game machine monkey wrenched is for them to get mad. So when they get mad, they they that's the that's the manifestation of a game machine being monkey wrenched. So um and for a trainer, that's an ideal situation. For a person to get mad, uh, um, what they're doing is internally disrupting their own set of assumptions and destroying the game machine from the inside. So in a way, as a trainer, when a person gets enraged, you have succeeded in the first part of the demanding process, which is to, um, which is to you know, disrupt the game as it is to do. Um, yeah, to step in and um, rattle the cage or shake up the way things are producing, adding stress from the external environment. So what happens when a person gets mad is that their game and the game comes apart is that their game is no longer successful or no longer viable or does not, no longer contains um, contains, it's no longer a, a container. It's got a hole in it. So as as their game machine is, is monkey-wrenched, then something else automatically becomes possible. And what that is, is um, that they have to do something different. In order to have a relationship with the world, they have to have some kind of psychological game going on but if this one is destroyed they've got to come up with a different one so the assumption that a, that a trainer makes is that when a person creates for themselves a new game machine one thing is that it will have to be bigger than the original game machine because it will have to contain you or the noise that you're making or the set of assumptions outside of of their um, original game. So it will have to be bigger, but um, and a trainer doesn't have to provide resolution. A trainer doesn't have to provide plans or uh, directions or um, even uh, a trainer shouldn't, or you know, it doesn't work for a trainer to rescue a person by supplying you know, what the new game should be. What the what the trainer.